Type in your devices, Mark chapter 9. This morning we're going to be in verses 14 to 22. Mark 9, 14 to 22. Title of the sermon this morning is this, Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So let's read the text, open us in a word of prayer, and we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And we'll stop right there. If you will, pray with me. Father, I pray this morning as we begin a new story and look at the first part of it, God, would you help us to, to, to walk away this morning with a very clear understanding um, that apart from your son, apart from you, God, we can do nothing. Not some things, not, not a few things, but nothing. I pray, God, that you would help us to see that the disciples, apart from you, they could not cast out this demon because apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us to, to believe that this morning, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning, uh, we get to a new story, and I wanted to do the, the entire story in one sermon because it really all goes together. But as I began writing it, it was just way too much. I could not get everything in that I wanted to, so I needed to split it into two parts. And so we're going to look at the first part this week, and then we'll look at the second part next week. Let me give the context, especially if you're visiting with us, to give the context of where we were last week. So bring us all up to speed. I'll give an exposition of the text, and then I'll give us application at the end. So here's the context. Last week, we looked at that Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a mountain to pray. But he was leading them to much more than prayer. While on the mountain, the Father transfigured Jesus. In other words, changed his outward appearance. The Father gave these three disciples a glimpse of his son's glory, his true glory. And then the Father speaks to them out of the cloud, testifying that this is his beloved son. And he gives them a very simple, yet a very difficult command. Listen to him. Now, one of the questions that we might have had last week is this. 
If the three disciples are up on the mountain with Jesus, what were the other nine doing? What were the other nine doing while they're up there seeing the glory of Jesus? That's what we're going to get to this morning. We're going to find out. So let's look at an exposition of the text. Go through it uh, section by section, and then I'll give us application at the end. Let's start looking at verses 14 to 16 in Mark 9. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So as Jesus and the disciples walked down this mountain, they rejoined the other nine disciples, but they're not alone. There is a great crowd there. And part of the crowd are the scribes, the experts in the Mosaic law, and frequently seen as opponents of Jesus. The scribes are having this argument with the disciples. The word for arguing there can take the more tame meaning of questioning or discussing, or it can take the more contentious meaning of debating, disputing, or arguing. And I think that's what we have here. I think this is a contentious argument that they're having. Now, I imagine that the crowds have all centered around this debate. Disciples on one side, scribes on the other. The crowds are all gathered around them. They're intently listening in to this argument. We, we tend to like things like this. They're entertaining sometimes, sinfully entertaining. But all of a sudden, their attention is drawn away from the argument to something else, to someone else. They see Jesus. As he comes down the mountain, you see, there are arguments which are entertaining and there is Jesus who is amazing. When they see him, they are greatly amazed. The Greek word for amazement is thombos. This word is ekthombeo, greatly amazed. Now we are given no indication that when Jesus came down the mountain, he looked any different than when he first went up the mountain. On top of the mountain, Jesus had shown them his true glory. But down in the valley, we are given every indication that he looks nothing more than a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. Now, what are the disciples and the scribes arguing about? That's what Jesus wants to know. It's unclear if Jesus asked this question to the scribes or to the disciples when he says, what are you arguing with them about? It's unclear of who he's asking that question to. But somebody else altogether answers his question. Look at verse 17 to 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So all of a sudden, a random man in the crowd answers Jesus. He addresses Jesus as teacher. Now, this is the same meaning as rabbi, but a different Greek word than rabbi. And he says, I brought my son to who? To you. Notice, he, he didn't say, I brought my son to the scribes. He didn't say, I brought my son to your disciples. He says, I brought my son to you, to Jesus but he didn't see Jesus because Jesus is on top of the mountain revealing his glory to the three disciples. 
Now, why did the father bring his son to Jesus? Because he has a spirit that makes him mute. Now, as I've mentioned before, we are not to see a distinction between demons, evil spirits, or unclean spirits. They are all three used interchangeably in the Gospels. This boy has a spirit or a demon that makes him mute. He can't speak. Maybe can't hear. There are other examples where demons did this, where they made people mute, they made them blind, or both. Now, just as a side note, I want to be very clear here. The Bible is not suggesting that all blindness or all muteness is caused by demonic possession. Of course not. But it is suggesting that God has given great power to demons to affect people in terrible ways. Not only did the demon make him mute, but it also physically tormented this boy. Text says that it would seize him, literally overpower him. It would throw him to the ground, cause him to foam at the mouth and grind his teeth. And he would become rigid, literally paralyzed. And so in light of this horrendous suffering, this father brings his son to Jesus. There's only one problem. Jesus is not there. Jesus is on top of the mountain, revealing his glory to his disciples. So the father does the next best thing. He asks the nine disciples if they will cast out the demon. But in an unexpected twist, they're not able. Don't you imagine the scribes love that? Don't you imagine the scribes just pounced on their inability to cast out the demon? Now, why were the disciples not able to cast out this demon? I'll get to there. I'll get there next week. Look at verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Mark writes, he answered them. Plural. Plural. Who is the them? It could be the nine disciples. It could be the scribes. It could be the crowds at large. It could be all of the above. Now, in the other Gospels, Jesus calls them a faithless and twisted generation, which would certainly refer to unbelievers, not the disciples. But then Jesus' statement comes right after the Father says that the disciples were unable to do this, which would lead us to believe he's referring to the disciples. So which is it? I like what R.T. France writes who's a commentator, he says, the nine disciples who were left behind hardly constitute an entire generation, right? So that would seem to imply that it's more than just them. And he says, their faithlessness is symptomatic of a wider human condition. In other words, I think it is quite possible that when Jesus makes this statement in verse 19, he is referring to everybody in this crowd, including the disciples on some level. This is one of the few places where it appears that Jesus gets righteously frustrated. Righteously frustrated. He describes this generation as faithless, literally unbelieving. And he asks them two questions. He says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear 
with you. How do we make sense of Jesus' questions? In other words, does Jesus get tired of putting up with people's unbelief? In one sense, yes. In one sense, yes. I'll talk more about that in the application. I want you to notice, though, that despite Jesus' weariness with their unbelief, look at what he says. Bring him to me. You see, Jesus could have walked away. He could have walked away. He could have, I'm out of here. He could have walked away because of their unbelief, but he doesn't. Jesus invites the Father to bring his Son to him. Look at verse 20 to 22. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So they bring the boy to Jesus. And when the evil spirit sees Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. The word there for convulse means to agitate violently. Now this is not the medical condition of epilepsy. Because when the spirit sees Jesus, it convulses the boy. Why? Because Jesus has stepped into the ring and the demon is throwing everything he has at this boy. It throws him on the ground. He rolls about. He begins foaming at the mouth. Jesus asks them, asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from childhood. Which gives us the impression this, is, this boy is not a young child because it's been happening since childhood. Why does Jesus ask this question? Why does he ask how long has this been happening? It's not because he doesn't know the answer. Perhaps it was for the crowd's benefit. Perhaps he wants the crowds to know the depth of this boy's suffering and the father's suffering, and therefore that they would all know the depth of his healing. Now, one of the questions that we might have is, why does the demon do this? Like, why does the demon put this boy through this suffering? You know, movies and TV shows, they often picture demons or the devil as kind of a cartoon character, right? It's kind of an innocent, kind of playful cartoon character. We see right here, that's hardly the case. This demon wants to destroy this boy. The father testifies to this. The father says it has often cast him into fire and into water. To what? To destroy him. This demon, he does not just want to make this boy mute. It wants to kill this boy. And it would probably if it could. Multiple times it has tried burning him. Multiple times it has tried drowning him. You know, as a parent, you, you lock the door at night to keep people out from harming your children. We are not given locks to the soul. This father cannot lock out this demon from his son's body. So what does he do? He plays the one card that he has. He only has one card, and it is this. He appeals to Jesus' compassion. 
He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. We'll stop there with exposition. Application of the text. I have nine exhortations. As you can see why I could not get this into one sermon. Number one. Jesus is more important than any argument we are having. Jesus is more important than any argument we are having. When Jesus came down the mountain, he finds the nine disciples and the scribes engaged in an argument. Now, we don't know what they're arguing about. We don't, but I assume it is over the disciples' inability to cast out the demon. This is all conjecture. Perhaps they had uh, said they could do it. He comes to see Jesus. He's not there. The disciples are like, oh, well, we can do it. And then they try, and then they can't. And perhaps the scribes just pounced on this, accusing them of being frauds. I imagine the crowds are listening in on this argument, right? Who was right? Who was wrong? Are the scribes right? Are the disciples wrong? But when the crowds see Jesus, what do they do? They leave the argument and they run to Jesus. Why? Because something greater than this argument is here. Jesus is more important than any argument we are having. Now, let me be very clear. Let me be very clear. I am not saying that arguments are unimportant. Arguments are necessary. They are part of being a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without making arguments. What I am saying is that Jesus is more important than any argument we are having. Christianity is quickly becoming polarized in America. Quickly becoming polarized in America. And in this context, the two extreme sides are this. A, those who never make an argument. In other words, there are those who will not specify their terms. They won't give definitions. They won't attempt to be precise. They speak in vague generalities. If you try to press them on what do you mean by that, they won't give a definition. They won't be precise. That's one side. The other side, the other extreme, are those who do nothing but argue over terms, definitions, and precision. They've turned Christianity into an argument. Now certainly I want to speak to both sides, and I would speak to both sides, but this morning, since we're talking about this, I only want to speak to side B. One of the dangers in being engaged in arguments, whether it is in person or online, especially if online, is that we can all too easily miss Jesus in the argument. We, we, we lose Jesus in the process. It becomes more about the argument and winning the argument than it does about Jesus. We can become like the scribes who want to debate the disciples, but they miss Jesus in the process. Christianity is not foundationally about arguments. It's about Jesus. 
And if, and if, and if I want to be really clear in case you're visiting with us this morning, uh, if you don't know me, and, I, and I, of course you don't if you're visiting, um, I, I like to make arguments. I'm on that side of the spectrum. But we need to be careful that we don't miss Jesus in the process of making our arguments. Number two, Satan and his demons are present and active and they are wreaking havoc in our world. Satan and his demons are very present and active and they are wreaking havoc in our world. As I mentioned last week, we all love the mountaintop experiences, don't we? Inevitably, though, we must come down to the valley. And down in the valley, there are demons. We cannot escape this reality in our world. Remember when Jesus uh, told the disciples, come away with me? He got into a boat. He wanted to go to the other side of the lake. He wanted to get away from the crowds. What happened when he got to the other side? He stepped out of the boat. Immediately he was met by a demoniac, a man who had a legion of demons. Jesus is searching for peace. He's searching for solitude. He's searching for rest. And he's met with demons. The disciples are on top of the mountain. They are beholding the glory of the Lord. They are listening to the voice of God. Inevitably, though, they must come down to earth. And the first thing they encounter, you, might, you, think, you ever think about that? You just saw the glory of Jesus. And the first thing you see when you come back down is a demon-possessed boy. Satan and his demons are present and active, and they are wreaking havoc in our world. Today is uh, Super Bowl Sunday. And yes, I will watch part of the Super Bowl. I was thinking this week how fitting it is that the Super Bowl is in Las Vegas this year. Sin City. You see, the Super Bowl brings together many of the gods in our country. The God of football, and yes, football has become a god in our country. The God of pride. The God of money. The God of betting. Have you guys realized how much the, the betting industry has grown? It's like exponentially grown in America. It's, it's out of control. The God of sex. The God of alcohol. The God of entertainment. And behind all of these gods is Satan and his demons. When we read this story, we must be careful not to look at this and say, oh, well, demons were really active back then. I don't really see it today. They don't act that way, not, not in our context at least. There are far subtler ways, more destructive ways, that Satan and his demons are at work in our world today. Behind the scenes, wreaking destruction, wreaking havoc and destruction in our world. We must be vigilant, spiritually sober, and aware of this reality. Number three, when something is beyond our control, bring it to the one who controls all things. When something is beyond our control, bring it to the one who controls all things. Now, we don't know how old this boy was. He might have been 10, might have been 15, might have been 20, may have been older, I don't know. Regardless of how old he is, this man is still a father. You never stop being a father. 
As a father of four sons, here are my four sons right here. As a father of four sons, I cannot imagine what I would begin to feel as a father if a demon was doing this to my child. My job as a dad is to protect my children. I would die to protect my children. And yet this is out of his control. It's out of his control. How helpless I would feel as a father. There is no medicine for this. There is no doctor who can make him speak. There is no therapy for his condition. The father has no control over this demon. So what does he do? He brings his son to the one who has all control. Whenever we have reached a place of helplessness in our life, any of us, we always have three options. Do you feel helpless this morning about something? Do you feel desperate about something? We always have three options. A, you can give it your all. Give it your all. B, we can give up. Or C, we can give it to Jesus. The father can't give it his all. (laughs) Imagine he says, you know, I'm going to fight this demon. He loses. The father loses. The father cannot give it his all. It's out of his control. That's often our instinct is to, I'm going to give it my all. You you come to something helpless, I'm going to give it my all. Some things are out of your control. The father can't give up. He can't give up. No loving father would give up on his son. So what does the father do? He does the one thing that all of us must do whenever anything is beyond our control. Give it to Jesus. He brings his son to Jesus. When something is beyond your control, give it to Jesus. Let him deal with it. Four. The disciples' inability to cast out the demon reminds us all that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. The disciples' inability to cast out the demon reminds us all that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. The Father clearly states, I brought my son to who? To you. The only problem is that Jesus is not there. So he does the next best thing. He asked the B team. He asked the nine disciples to cast out the demon. The father says they were unable. Literally, how that literally translates, they did not have the power to do it or they did not have the strength to do it. Now, I want to be very clear here. Let's be really clear. It's not because the disciples were incapable of casting out demons. It's not because they were incapable. We saw in Mark 6, 7, we've already seen there that Jesus gave them authority to do this. Mark 6, 7, he called the 12, began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over the unclean spirits. This ability went beyond the 12. It's not just because, well, oh, well, maybe because three were gone. 
that they couldn't do it. No, 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 no. The, the ability went beyond the 12. In Luke 10, 17, the 72 disciples returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So why were the disciples not able to cast out this demon? I will talk about that next week. But for now, let this be, for now, let this be a poignant reminder to all of us of what Jesus said to us in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is such a valuable lesson. Why? Because what this teaches us is that even if we have been able to do something in the past, apart from Jesus, today, I can do nothing. In other words, yesterday's grace will not suffice for today. Yesterday's power will not suffice for today. We need Jesus today. We need His grace today. We need His power today. We must not think that I can rely on past grace, past power. I suspect maybe the disciples were thinking, oh, I got this. I've done this many times. You ever been there? I got this. I've done this many times. We need Jesus every single day. Five. Persistent unbelief wearies the heart of God. Persistent unbelief wearies the heart of God. This is one of the few places where we see Jesus frustrated and wearied. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now we see in the Bible that persistent unbelief wearies the heart of God. Malachi 2.17 you have wearied the Lord with your words. Isaiah 43, 24, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now let me, let me be very clear. God is not saying these things to condemn us. Jesus does not say these things to condemn the crowd or to condemn us. He says them to awaken us. To realize that if faith is the thing that pleases God more than anything, then what displeases God more than anything? A lack of faith. And especially a persistent lack of faith. Have you ever considered what was the most common rebuke that Jesus gave? You ever looked through the Gospels? Like, what was the most common rebuke that Jesus gave? He said it five different times. Oh, you of little faith. Everyone in this story exhibited some form of faithlessness. The scribes exhibited unbelief in their argument with the disciples. The disciples exhibited their little faith and their inability to cast out the demon. We'll look at that next week. The father exhibited his little faith in his statement, if you can. We'll talk about that next week as well. 
This is why Jesus is frustrated and wearied. This is why, because Jesus looks around at this crowd, including the disciples, including the scribes, and all he sees is just a lack of faith. This is why Jesus asked the question in Luke 18, 8, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Persistent unbelief wearies the heart of God. But number six, Jesus' compassion is greater than our unbelief. Jesus' compassion is greater than our unbelief. There is kind of this shock effect by Jesus' words in verse 19, isn't it? Right? When you read that, that's not how we normally think of Jesus. These are not the kind of words that get posted on Instagram. These are not the, the words that get painted on a coffee mug or written in calligraphy in a frame and then sold on Etsy. I doubt any of you have this hanging in your house. Except maybe Frank. <laughs> we often don't have a context. We, we, we don't have a context for frustrated, weary Jesus. We don't have a context for it because it's so shocking to us. But I want, I, want to, I want to challenge us on something. What is most shocking about verse 19 is not Jesus' statement, oh, faithless generation. That's not what's most shocking. What is most shocking is not his two questions. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? What is most shocking about Jesus' statements in verse 19 is this. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. When Jesus went to Nazareth, Mark says that he couldn't do many mighty miracles there. Why? Because of their lack of faith. He could have had the same reaction here. He could have had the same reaction and said... If they're a faithless generation, then I'm, I'm out of here. But he doesn't. Why? Because Jesus' compassion is greater than our unbelief. We may have little faith, but praise God, he does not have little compassion. Praise God that Jesus' compassion is not dependent on our faith. Because if it was, this little boy is not getting healed. Our faith is small, but His mercy is great. Seven. Demons do not easily give up ground that they have won. Brace for the storm before the calm. Demons do not easily give up ground that they have won. Brace for the storm before the calm. When Jesus came down the mountain, it appears that this boy is fine for the time being. We're given every indication that when Jesus first comes down the mountain, this boy is fine. Maybe he looked completely fine from the outside until the demon sees Jesus. The moment that it sees Jesus, Mark writes that it immediately convulsed the boy, fell on the ground, rolled about, and began foaming at the mouth. Why? Because demons do not easily give up ground that they have won. If you've ever studied trench warfare, I'm sure all of you have studied trench warfare. Uh, 
The goal is to win ground. In trench warfare, the goal is to win ground. Once you win that ground, you dig in. You dig in and you fight. Why? Because you do not want to give up ground. You fight. This demon has won ground in this boy's life and it is not ready to give it up. So this demon is not going down without a fight. You know, we have a phrase, the calm before the storm. In spiritual warfare, it's the exact opposite. It's the storm before the calm. Whenever Satan has gained ground in our life, in whatever context, he does not give up that ground easily. Whenever you try by God's grace to gain back that ground, he will often put up a fierce fight. Fierce fight. This is why sometimes I talk to men and they're, they're, they're battling like something like pornography or something. They try to stop it. And then they are just, they fall back into it and they fall back into it hard. Hard. Why? Because Satan doesn't give up ground easily. Satan can't stand the thought of Jesus taking back that ground that is rightfully his. Demons do not easily give up ground that they have won. Brace, brace for the storm before the calm. Number eight. The greatest threat to our children and our church is not from without, but from within. The greatest threat to our children and our church is not from without, but from within. One of the saddest things that I see in Christianity is something that I hear Christian parents say and I hear Christian pastors say. They believe the lie that the reason their children or their congregants fall into sin, this sin or that sin, is because of external influences. They say things like, well, they started hanging out with the wrong crowd. They started dating the wrong person. They went to the wrong school. They were reading the wrong sources. It is very common for pastors and or Christian parents to blame their congregant sin or their children's sin on external influences. The problem with this boy is not that he's hanging out too close to the fire and too close to the water. The problem is that he has a demon inside of him that is trying to destroy him. Now, I am by no means suggesting that every lost child or every lost congregant has a demon inside of them. But what I am suggesting is this, the greatest threat to our children, the greatest threat to our church is not from without, but from within. In other words, we don't need a demon to destroy us. Nobody needs a demon to destroy us. Self will destroy us. We will destroy ourselves. Our own hearts will destroy us. Our wills will destroy us. Our folly will destroy us. 
You see, this father, he could lock away his son in a padded room away from all fire. But what will protect him from the eternal fire? This boy needs Jesus. He needs to be transformed from the inside out. Do not think that if I just change external circumstances, my children would just make better decisions. If, if my congregants would just change their external circumstances, they'll be good. Not if their heart is off. Nine. Last point. Our only, and therefore our best, appeal to God is God. Our only, and therefore our best, appeal to God is God. As I mentioned earlier, this demon is beyond the Father's control. The demon is beyond the crowd's control. He's beyond the scribe's control. He's beyond even the disciples' control. Even the disciples have no control over this. So what does the Father do? He appeals to Jesus. Now I want you to notice how does he appeal to Jesus? What does he appeal to? He doesn't appeal to the age of his son. Let's say that his son was 10. Well, I, have, well, I don't have a, how old are you, Ezra? You 10? I have a 10-year-old son. <laughs> it's hard when you have four sons. Like it, it, cha it changes four times every year. Uh, he doesn't appeal to the age. He doesn't say, look at my boy, he's 10 years old. Have mercy on a 10-year-old. He doesn't appeal to the age of his son. He doesn't appeal to the pain of his son. He doesn't appeal to the duration of his condition. He doesn't appeal to his own worthiness. He doesn't appeal to his own determination to get there. What does the father appeal to? The compassion of Jesus. Have compassion on us and help us. Our only and therefore best appeal to God is God. And here's the crazy thing. This is the craziest thing of all. God likes it when we appeal to him based on him. He likes it. It glorifies him. It testifies to our faith in Him that we believe He is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and gracious. He likes it when we appeal to Him. Our only and our best appeal to God is God. Let's pray.